This is Raquel J, founder of At The Red Door and At The Red Door podcast, curator of safe spaces for telling your story. I'd like to welcome you into this week's conversation with visual artist, chief curator, environmental installation artist, philanthropist, mentor, and friend, Alpha Bhutan. Her curatorial practice is the Phantom Gallery Chicago Network, where she is the chief curator and board administrator. She collaborates with various art organizations, is a member of the Bronzeville Art District, where she is represented by Gallery Gouchard. Her practice extends to California, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, and Maryland. Internationally, she is a member of the Global Art Space Berlin Art Club and the International Art Group. She lists her artistic statement as, my current work examines cultural signs and symbols and their use or interpretation. I believe that objects in the public sphere serve to communicate and reinforce certain cultural narratives, hierarchies, and social mythologies. My artworks at time or a window to the imaginary, a summons, and an overture to a dialogue, that dialogue being traces of childhood memories to my adult life. Join us in a two-part episode series that speaks to her beginnings, and her cultural artistic current work. Come on into the room as she begins to talk about her beginnings in Fresno. More of a um, mentee to a lot of young girls and uh, African-American students that were in the um, elementary, junior high, Uh, age and I was teaching um, dance through the park district and through art school programs and that was my first gig in terms of teaching art and working when I was in junior college. I was maybe not even six years older than most of the kids that you know I worked and and under my tutorage that came in um, the dance program and it was Oya Dance Company and I took them you know, from learning not only about African dance, but about the culture. And I was taken through a cadre training when I first entered college at Fresno City College. And and that was in the 1970s. And I didn't know a lot about self, you know, in terms of that wasn't being taught to me as, um, you know, uh, an African-American student. I went to McLean High School, Sequoia Junior High School, and Tillman Elementary School. And those are the things that we, that I wasn't taught in terms of African-American studies, you know, and, um, you know, and, and kind of, even though that we were there doing the Panther movement, we were there doing, you know, the later part of, you know, the, you know, what was going on in Oakland with the pulse of the, you know, civil rights movement and things that were going on. The part of Fresno that I grew up in, we were more sheltered, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much so. You know what I mean? And we didn't, we didn't have a broad global um, connection with um, what was going on in, you know, in, in America. I heard it. You know, and I heard people coming home and my father coming home and talking about it, but we just didn't, you know, even it was on TV, we were in this bubble. So when I went to Fresno City College, my bubble was busted, mainly because I ran into bigotry in the art history classes where they thought Adam Clayton Powell was a disgrace to the race and he introduced Black History um, Week.
covered in one week and we got laughter from the class the way he said it. And I felt like, you know, I need to get out of this classroom because I know hatred and I know bigotry. And I know that when you're going to introduce a topic and a subject, you're going to, you know, you're, it's a dismissive way, you know, that, that our contribution to the United States didn't matter. And here I was a 19 year old in a classroom facing real raw, you know, bigotry. Um, and it was being instilled in the other students in the classroom. So I, I dropped that class and I went to um, Kahendi Sawazi's class. I was invited by another student to go to uh, the, uh, when he was teaching African-American history. And, and, and everything he was saying was on point, you know, and I, you know, changed my major from physical therapy, from all the stuff that I was doing so that I could focus on the, my foundation. And I took the next two years of taking every African-American studies class that Fresno City College had to live and uh, to give. And I had a minor emphasis in African-American studies in my associate art degree. Um, I also at the same time was taking dance classes, you know, um, and learning, you know, the basis of modern dance. I was going to the Bay Area and my cadre training and learning, taking African dance workshops at Laney College and all those things that I was doing when I was leaving uh, Fresno, going over to the Bay Area on trips, they were all part of what I call a culturation and learning from other African students from the continent that were coming and they were teaching dance styles from, you know, tribal dance styles from their country. And I never went, I never, you know, um, went uh, to the continent, but I was taking what I was learning. And in turn, as a, you know, I'm not even 20 yet, I was going back into the community, teaching these, what I'm learning to the students, to the elementary school students that were not even six years younger than me, you know, they, you know, that they were, uh, and I was, um, you know, teaching them on um, Swahili, I was teaching, them Yoruba, I was teaching them, um, you know, beyond the dance, I was teaching them about hygiene, about combing their hair, about African-centric hairstyles. Um, they would come over, we would sew, we would make their costumes. And so I made it more of a holistic approach to working in the community and working with, um, you know, the young people and working with Rocky. <laughs> And I think I was a mean teacher, was I not? Was I stern? Was I kind of like... You're very stern. <laughs> but, it was, you know, but it was because of when they got on stage, these girls were powerful. They didn't get tired. They knew, you know, we went to Oakland African Liberation Day one year, and I mean, they were the best dancers that got up there and they were just elementary junior high kind of age girls and they just threw down you know because i wanted them to be like i want you guys to be so afraid to not mess up but when you got on stage from the practicing that we went through that you were on point nobody shied away they were they would say they were scared right but they would do it on stage, and once they got into the music, it was just this magic that happened, you know? And um, I still think about those days, and I'm still probably that person that has a high, I set a high bar of expectation when I'm yeah, doing you did. Like that. And, and I'm um, appreciative of that high bar. Because when you set standards that high, and we were able to attain those standards, then we realized that those standards like that 
we can continue with that on anything we do. And so I, so that's why I said I'm always very appreciative because you pushed us into boundaries that we never thought possible. I can speak for myself. I never thought, you know, I would go out there and dance and do African dancing. And, and that was like the seventies, you know? So when we talk about doing that, nobody was doing it. And you guys talk were about really up in that aspect. Nobody was doing that. And you guys were really shy too. I mean, uh, I know you were very shy and very quiet. Oh, very. You know? And uh, and then even your mom was surprised that you would get up there and you would you would want to come to practice and you guys would show up to rehearsals and and um and but I just think about like I wasn't even like 20 then I was still like 18 19 20 and um and still learning myself but I think that that I don't I'm not gonna say I think that's when my whole mindset of philanthropic giving because uh, started happening for me at that young age where I would go and I would earn the money and I would come back and invest it into community, invest it into the Oya Dance Theater. Um, well, I was a teacher's assistant at um, Sequoia Junior High School and a counselor there said that the only thing that was wrong with me is I hadn't been anywhere. Meaning wow. they knew me from growing up in Fresno. They knew me from growing up on the West side, you know, by Chandler, you know, airport, uh, you know, and I, and they knew that I was doing things through acculturation, but not where I went out and had the kind of experience that someone from outside brings in, you know, all of a sudden they have all this talent, you know, and then they were doing the same thing I did, but it, they paid more attention to what someone else was doing as if it was global and bigger. So with that, I said, I got to get out of here, you know, and in order to grow, I really did need to leave home. I need to leave um, Fresno. Don't live the same day over and over and over again and call that a life. Life is about evolving mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Germany Kent. Well, I'm going into the visual art world um, and art education. Um, and so I left the dance uh, world that I was in and went into uh, studio art and also uh, art education and doing those, um, you know, uh, majors and minors. Um, and then also I went into the teaching credential program uh, in Sacramento. So you've always had this desire to be um, a creative uh, aspect of a person and you went from dancing and, and learning about who you were and who your people were then to doing actual I, I've known you all my, pretty much like I said all my life and I've known that you've always done the creative aspect as an artist as a painting artist and so how did you did you start doing that when did you start doing that and what was your aim in doing that work well I, as a visual artist i was always a visual artist like you said um but i the but i, I have a i'm proficient in uh, a multidisciplinary approach to you know the liberal arts and what i was kind of shy about showing my visual work and so mm -hmm. you, people, but I wasn't shy about the teaching of the African dance because, you know, I was a dancer. I wasn't shy about theater, you know, um, and creating plays and doing that because I did that growing up. You know, even though I said I was in this bubble, 
that bubble existed right over there on Lemon, you know, uh, San Joaquin, where your, you know, your family is, uh, <laughs> Taylor Airport, because we were given the range to play. You know, we have, yes. you know, um, a big backyard, you know, Mother Helen was the other, you know, part of the yard where we were all over. And my stepfather would be out there building and making and recycling. And, and we were creating puppet theaters. We were creating houses. We were, these were kind of installation works that we were doing as children. Um, we didn't have a lot, but we had a couple, you know, we had that acre. And we had, you know, my mother was a quilter. You know, she she wasn't she quilted for the family. She didn't quilt for like what we do now in terms of contemporary quilting stuff. But I learned the sewing part of it. Got my sewing machine, and you know, so I was always. My mother would say I was always like that. I was always like an artist. She's always been creative. And I and in elementary in elementary school, I would be. I can remember being invited into the principal's office not for punishment but for doing the bulletin board putting an art right. installation of the sixth grade artwork in creating a bulletin board or even during high school i created the bulletin boards you know um for the school because i was that creative type like that and so i had the visual world you know that was parallel with the dance and one didn't take over the other, but I was invited to teach dance and dance was my money. <laughs> dance was where I was being paid, you know, like my first job as in that time, I didn't do minimum wage. I did like $10 an hour and $10 an hour in 1970, <laughs> in 1970, that was like a good little salary, you know, for after school programming and teaching. And that was my first teaching assignment with the, you know, with the, uh, park district and stuff and so i thought i was and, and working with the schools that was the money they were kind of giving me and i and that helped me pay for my college and pay for the dance troupe and stuff like that so um that's why you saw me doing more of that and in the background i was painting and you know i was creating my art and um you know and doing and drawing and doing those things and i also was taking art classes you know um you know, like I said, everything was kind of parallel with, even though it was emphasis of black studies, I still was taking my electives in visual art, you know, and learning printmaking and learning to do uh, pulling paper, you know, even uh, uh, paper making workshops. So Fresno City College has a huge paper making uh, area there where they, equipment that I learned that kind of work. I learned sculpture and uh you know the printmaking with copper plates and metal plates and i mean all the hands-on i was doing and that's what you really know me for and so but with that you know in sacramento that i got more of that i got more vested into the uh you know into the department and uh in the other part of our education art is standing with one hand extended into the universe and one hand extended into the world and letting ourselves be a conduit for passing energy. Albert Einstein. You know, I have this other project that I started here in uh, Chicago and it's called the Phantom Gallery Chicago Network. And again, that's my, like I said, my curatorial practice. And with that, a lot of artists come through here. A lot of artists, you know, they're down for this little niche in, um, that's kind of it's kind of mainstream, but it, and it's not typical like um, 
you know, it's art. Artists that want to show their work in temporary installation spaces, and they're down for, mm-hmm. um, like I did this whole show on let us um, examine the state of our environment, and this realtor that I. I got 5,000 square feet that I want you to come check out. I said, okay. She said, but the only thing, it doesn't have any heat in it. I said, okay. So we went over to this Overton hygienic building. And it's an historical building here in uh, Bronzeville. Bronzeville is the neighborhood I live in. And it's an historic uh, uh, landmark, uh, well, community, because it was part of the great black migration from the South. And people came and they lived and they, you know, uh, had Black Wall Street and all that here in, um, in Bronzeville. So I said, okay, so this building, it's an historic registry and all that. And so now it's being, uh, uh, architect has bought it and they're renovating and doing some things on the inside of it. And, but they're keeping the structural integrity of the building. So I said, okay, you know, I like this, you know, it's an open space, it's raw, you know, I beat the drums and, and, and sent out a call for curators. Do you know, I got people that came in and they were down for showing in this building. It's freezing in November in Chicago, you know, it's snowing out there. And we had no heat in that building. Did you know they came and they brought these installations that they were working on and were able to install and they didn't look to be paid to do it. They weren't expecting for someone to come through and, oh, I'm going to buy your art. It wasn't about that. It was about the conversations about the projects that they've been working on and a place to be able to install them and to bring an audience to talk about them and then to record that and archive those conversations right and i kind of i do the visual world but i also am known as a environmental installation artist where i go and and work in the um you know like in a, a temporary installation spaces um i went up into like you know um land trust areas and created outdoor installations by using nature as part of the installation um meaning like i went for example i had went up in um arburn california and an artist that i knew anita uh, posse Lowe, she had five acres and we were able to go like we did growing up playing in the yard I did the beating of the drum and I had all these artists that flew in from Maryland, that flew in from Jersey, that flew in from San Francisco, that drove up from Fresno, that were in the Sacramento area. And we went to her property and we just played. We But we had these installation projects everybody wanted to do, like taking pine cones and pine needles and making a labyrinth, you know, painting trees. You know, and this might sound like, what in the world are they doing up there? Just, you know, not that hippie, but dippy kind of thing. But it was, you know, I do that kind of work where it's environmental and I go and, and, and recycle things that are part of nature and create these installations, right? And so I did this whole simulation of a fire pit um, because one of the reasons why we did this michelle walker the director of the metropolitan arts commission she had started her own philanthropic organization by raising money and then giving it back into arts education programs uh, uh, within the state and she had passed away you know like uh, i think she had a brain aneurysm and she had uh, passed 
And she had a gallery that was called Myths, Legends, and Living Tradition that was up in Auburn. And this was a way for us to bring some closure to her passing and people were grieving because she had been like 15 years, 20 years in Sacramento doing arts, you know, and the, on the big level. And there's a lot of problems and considerations for women like ourselves that do work in the public sphere with art money because it's such an elitist level of programming and anytime you got that kind of money and you're dispensing it out on our programming, there's this resentfulness, you know, that, and, and the bigotry is there, you know, and, and it's blatant, you know, um, and it's always you're under attack by this. I can't even begin. That's a whole nother show <laughs> about what happens, right. you know, when you're on that level. And um, we were doing, trying to do some closure. And there were some shamans um, that were up in the urban area that came and we had to deal with um, her ashes. We had to deal with, you know, um, how we let the spiritual part of, you know, her art gallery go. And it was a, that place that she had was a sacred place for other art administrators that had passed, she built these altars for, you know, and that was her way of kind of giving back and just investing money into the Placer County Arts Council up there. So um, on this property, all of these people were coming, you know, and we were talking about legacies and we were talking about how to do land trust and how, and what do we do with all of this collections of these international educators, you know, what do we do with their legacies? What do we do with all their stuff? How do we make museum places? How? So we were kind of having another panel discussions or groupings of people were meeting there this whole week, you know, and as we were doing these ceremonies and the last night of the ceremony, I was building this whole installation of found logs that were already cut down of candles from that art center to be burned down in the pit um you know so it's a whole installation and that's online as well and what happened was with the grouping of women that came we were doing storytelling and everybody was sharing as they went around and talked about their grandmother so that's what grandmother circle is it's this installation that's outdoors and it's a, a coming together of people that are talking and giving stories but i built the environment for them to do that in and then it's food and it's libation and stuff like that and the shaman that comes and they do the burning of the sage in the four directions and it's all ceremonial um i am into you know projects like that that are and that are taken from outside and then i was hosted by a museum in um um eastern Illinois university to the charbor arts center invited me to come and install it at the museum there. So I do those types of projects and that's what the grandmother circle is. So it's beyond the textile, it's beyond creating these tapestries, it's about building these, you know, I kind of curate people, you know, and place them in these installations, which is who pays for that, right? Who who buys that? How do you look at cultivating those collectors or collector? Well, places? first and foremost, I um, 
I live in an art community. I live in the Brownsville Art District. And when you came, you said, okay, I get it now. You know why people, the, 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 the feel and being in an art community, you said, oh, I get it now, you know, um, because a lot of people don't get it, you know, of, of, of how we totally invest in our lives and our career. Uh, and that's what the collector does as well. Um, I'm part of Gallery Gouchard. Um, Gallery Gouchard uh, represents me. Uh, they're an agent for me, even though I'm my, uh, an agent and an art consultant and I create work, but I think that it, it, everyone in their own career, they have to feel that they really need another agent that's going to push their work, a gallery that's going to represent you beyond my own practice. I just have a practice in a, in a network and I, you know, it's mm -hmm. not a commercial, um, you know, practice. Um, and the uh, Gallery Gouchard is a um, gallery. And they have the collector base. Um, I create um, work, um, and I'm on their website. You know, they um, represent me. I'm under contract with them, and they um, they cultivate the collector base. You know what I mean? And my work sells with all the work that they do uh, nationally and internationally, okay. pushing the uh, artists that they represent. Um, the other part of the conversation is that I'm a collector as well. I collect a lot of the artists right. that I represent that come through the Phantom Gallery. I try to make sure I purchase one of their pieces because I'm investing into that artist. Even though the artists pay to play, we all pay to play. We can't even begin to say that we don't pay to play because even though I am represented and the collectors Sometimes the collectors walk in the gallery and I don't even know that they've collected my work because those are things that are confidential within the gallery, you know, circuit. Um, and uh, I just know that I pay the gallery 50% of my sale, you know, to represent me, you know, but that has secured me getting into bigger markets because I described to you the type of work I do in my curatorial practice. You know, and that type of work is not sellable. You know, it's not work will come and collect it. Right. These are these right. are like projects that I'm working on that I go out and earn money to invest into to play <laughs> with. You know, and um, right. you know what I mean. And but even here, we do a uh, in the summer we have an art walk, and that's our biggest revenue time when we have we deal with uh, cultural tourism or tourism when people come through. And we, we have these people that come through and work moves, you know, uh, in my space as well, uh, the Phantom Gallery. And I'm representing other artists in a smaller kind of venue, but those works have been moving. And there's work that's always been sold uh, each of the shows, this work that moves and the artists are kind of happy about that. But again, I am a collector. You know, I invest into the art market. I invest into the artists that I represent. I don't just show their work and take 50% of their money. I make sure that I purchase something for my own collection. Um, and, and I think that the right. other thing is like all my life in, that I've talked about and along the way, people have um, invested. I have a collector base as well of people. I only do original work. Um, I don't get into uh, lithographs, uh, limited editions, print copy kind of work. Uh, you know, uh, collectors know me for commissioning me to do their work. Um, agencies commission me to do murals. 
you know, like the museum is working with commissioning me to do, bringing me in as a guest artist. Um, I build a base like that where people are collecting my work on a bigger scale and not where I'm just sitting down making work, you know, thinking that a collector is going to come through to get it. And, and the real collectors want original work. They don't want work that's um, been reproduced and copied and you're known for an artist that does that. So um, I think you stick with your own integrity um, as an artist and what you um, want. Um, you know, they know I do experimental work and they know that if you get something of mine, <laughs> you're not going to see it out there, you know, copy, you know, uh, you know, in the in the world. And I think that a lot of times that's how you cultivate, you know, your, uh, you know, your collectors. Never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. Wilma Rudolph. I was getting ready to tell you, um, the influences were when I got to Sacramento and I had all this stuff going on with me and what I do. This artist named B. Herrera, she says, you know, she trusted me and she in brought me in. And this was before, you know, Celebration Arts and all that. And she brought me in and uh, included me in, in a group that she was running called the Inclusionist. And they were a group of influential, you know, uh, artists that were in the landscape of Sacramento. And they didn't do traditional art where you, they did paint and they printmaking, but they did these projects that they did maybe once or twice. They didn't do it more than that. It wasn't a a living project that went on and on and on. It was something that we did and it was done and we moved on. Those were my influences. I know you might have thought, well, you know, is Elizabeth Catlett. Yeah, I, I met with Elizabeth Catlett. Yes, you know, she um, is influenced in my, uh, her style is influenced in my art and her progressiveness is, is influenced in my art and her, um, you know, she was an activist, you know, uh, and that's influenced in my thinking and my art. And um, Sacramento brought her to, uh, from Mexico, flew her to uh, Sacramento to be part of the, um, you know, the sculpture garden that's right there at the convention center. Um, and had one of her sculptures mm -hmm. there and I picked her up from the airport and I just couldn't wait to get her from the airport. And I had lunch with her, had dinner with her, tried on makeup at the health food store. She has had great influence in my in my life in terms of um, if I'm going to pick an artist. And, and I'm not picking an artist out of art history, but an artist that I have walked a path with that I've sat down and broke bread with that I've laughed with and and, and it was Elizabeth Catlett you know she's a published artist she's passed away now but she has you know influenced the way African-American printmakers you know um, dialogues and African-American um, uh, women in sculpture uh, she's influenced that whole field Join us tomorrow for part two of the conversation with visual artist Alpha Bhutan. We will begin to uncover her current vision of work.